Amen. Thank you all for beautiful worship and that beautiful offering to the Lord and to us this morning. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, our text this morning, when they saw the star. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Well, according to our family tradition, the part I was to play was nine ladies dancing. No, 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 not not literally. Surely you know everyone's favorite classic Christmas song with its five golden rings and four calling birds and three French hens, two total doves, and partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. Our family dubbed me with nine ladies dancing. See, maybe you have a tradition like that. Uh, Our grandmother led it. Every time, every year, we would gather at her house, and before anyone could open any presents from our grandparents, we had to sing. They were singers. Our grandmother was a musician. She played the piano, taught piano, loved hearing the music, and her grandchildren were going to sing before they got a thing. And of course, like all good grandchildren, we said, yes, ma'am. And we lined up to play our part. Some years there would be songbooks. Sometimes it would be off the cuff. Sometimes she'd play piano. She might call on anyone to be the song leader that year you never knew. It was classic. So come all you faithful. Hark the herald angels sing. We might even sneak in some jingle bells or something like that. But you can imagine her elation when her four sons rounded out the family clan for a number of years with an even dozen, 12 grandchildren. And you know what that means in Christmas music. If you have 12 grandchildren, they have to line up oldest to youngest. And each person receives a part. And you sing the whole 12 days of Christmas, which takes 12 days. (laughs) And as the ages fell, I didn't get to be four calling birds or three French hens. I mean, nobody wanted to be the partridge in the pear tree. I'd have to say that every time anyways. That was the oldest. I was all the way down the row. I didn't get the drummers drumming. I was stuck with nine ladies dancing. A young boy's dream solo. Well, the 12 days of Christmas isn't just that funny song that we sing or try to avoid every year at this time. It lines up with those 12 days of Christmas marked off for the celebration of Christmas time. Some traditions pay more attention to a church calendar than others. Maybe you grew up in one of those, but the song reflects that Christmas celebration of which today marks that 12th day. You know, it wasn't until three centuries after Jesus' birth that the Romans marked December 25th to be the celebration of Christmas, lined it up with a winter solstice, and the 12 days would proceed from there. In fact, before they did that, they celebrated in the early church a different holiday around that time. It was called Epiphany. It's celebrated still each year on January 6th, tomorrow, after the 12 days of Christmas, remembering that moment That time when God revealed himself, epiphany, literally meaning to bring to light. The passages are are usually used of him, Jesus at his baptism, revealing himself to be the son of God. The same at the wedding of Cana. And of course, that beautiful story of Magi following a star 
from off in the east, a light that brings them to become the first worshipers of the new Christ child, not his own people, but Gentiles from a foreign land. And these visitors from the east have long captivated our imaginations. They appear only in Matthew's gospel. But they've had cameos and live nativities every day since. And boy, do they get some costumes. Aside from being nine ladies dancing, I was once cast as a gift bearer. I haven't quite made it to wise man yet. It takes a little more interesting goatee and a little more uh, maturity to get there. As a child, I wore the sequined robe and carried the little box behind that tall man down the aisle, the place at the feet of the manger. They don't get many lines, but boy, do they have a big part in the Christmas production. And Christians have been trying to nail down their identity for centuries. The term magi is exactly the Greek word that's used. That's why we translate it that way. And history shows us that these magi were astrologers, astronomers, interpreters of omens who followed a star and dreamed dreams. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, their bluntness had King Herod spitting out his morning coffee when they say, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw this, his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so Matthew puts before us these first worshipers following God's light. And the church has taken hold of them and tried to figure out exactly what was going on here. As early as 200 years after Jesus was born, the early church father Tertullian was laying out arguments that the Magi, while astrologers by trade, were kings from a foreign land. Other translations have chosen to call them wise men. Some of the reformers said, no way can they be kings. You can't even use that name. And even others in the first century, like Pliny the Elder, wrote chapters about the Magi where they sound more like something from a Harry Potter film than what we get in Matthew's account. He even goes into all kinds of detail about the magic that they would work, how they would boil earthworms and pour them into an ear to cure a toothache. That's some kind of Magi. And somewhere along the way, the tradition even gave them names. You can find them, Balthazar, Casper, Melchior. They have ages and complexions and characteristics. Matthew, of course, doesn't offer any of this. And the fact that there was even three of them isn't there. It's just assumed by the fact that they brought three gifts. Maybe there were three, five, thirty. We don't know. Matthew has them visiting the baby Jesus at his home. He's not really in Luke's manger nativity. These were men from Babylon, long known for observing the stars and making use of them for themselves. And they have been watching and waiting. And we're told they've come now at just the right time. It was a common idea in ancient times that the birth or death of great men was accompanied by heavenly signs like this. And that's what they've taken this one to be. They're like explorers who have set off in search of a foreign land, trying to discover something new. It reminds me of some of those tales you're told in early history classes about the age of discovery. Those 5th, 16th, 17th centuries when explorers were setting off from Europe in search of the new world or in search of a northwest passage or trying to find a trade route to India. 
Isn't the age of exploration riddled with explorers who discovered something by accident? I mean, after all, Columbus is the most well-known. He reaches Cuba and what was then Hispaniola and, and the later islands of the Caribbean, but he returned to Europe convinced he just paid a visit to China. His final voyage, voyage failed to give him a discovery of the Indian Ocean that he wanted, which makes sense considering that he landed in Central America. Juan Ponce de Leon, he gathered some of his men and set sail to this mythical island of Bimini that he'd heard about in the Caribbean. It was fabled to have held the fountain of youth. He found Florida, which today boasts more retired Americans than any other U.S. state. So I, how's that for irony? John Cabot was believed in his westward journey to be searching for Asia, a shorter northern route than Columbus took. When he reached his crew, what is now the eastern coast of Canada, probably Nova Scotia or Newfoundland, they promptly congratulated themselves on a voyage to Asia well done. And of course, there's Henry Hudson, who has a river named after him. He was looking for the Northwest Passage and didn't find it because, well, it didn't exist. And even later, explorers like Robert de La Salle would find his crews and ships wrecked in the Texas coast in search of the mouth of the Mississippi River. And these magi set off to find something, to follow a star, to, to go where the light led them. And they've landed in Herod's palace instead. Of course, the difference between these and those lost explorers is that these magi have already come to the realization that they are lost. You see, they know that they're already shipwrecked, that they're hopeless, that they're lost with some kind of divine intervention. Why else would you spend so much time looking up, counting and measuring and considering the stars if not to find an answer from above? Brennan Manning says that in this weakness and poverty, it is the shipwrecked at the stable who will come to know the love of God. It's those who realize their deep need, who have heard enough to seek out that healing, who have wept enough to scour the earth for something other than despair. And I wonder this morning, do you know that you're lost enough to need a guiding light? You know, to follow God's light, you have to know that you need one, that you're lost, that you, that you need to look up and to find his light to show the way. It was Soren Kierkegaard who said that the three kings had only a rumor to go by, but it moved them. It moved them to make that long journey. The scribes were much better informed, much better versed. They sat and studied scripture like so many do, but it made them do nothing. It did not make them move. He asks, who had more truth? The three kings who followed a rumor or the scribes who remained sitting with all of their knowledge? So Matthew is deliberate in telling us 
that the wise men come following a star and that they come in the time of Herod the Great. And we don't even meet them before being reminded in this turn of Matthew's narrative that Herod is in power. And from that moment on, the contrast has started between Herod's reception of the Christ child and that of the Magi. It's held before us to see ourselves in both. And for all the wisdom attributed to these men from the East who have found the star to be of world-changing significance, Herod seems to have none. History tells us he was a scary figure. He was a foreigner, a puppet king set up by the Romans, a pretender to the throne of David. And his personal life was in shambles. He had several wives and several sons, and he killed some of them because he found them to be a threat, including hundreds of others that he feared were plotting against him. In fact, the Emperor Augustus, and using a Greek play on words, you know, the Greek word for pig and for son is apparently very similar. Hmm. Augustus was quoted to have said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. The pig in the barnyard had a better hope of survival. So it's no surprise, I suppose, when Matthew tells us Herod's response. The Magi share why they've come, that a star has led them to worship the newborn king of the Jews, and Herod is troubled. He's disturbed, agitated, and all Jerusalem with him, verse 3 tells us. What inspired the Magi to journey to the light is for Herod unnerving, unsettling. Ellen Davis points out that when Herod heard about the one star that had risen in the east, the one born king of the Jews, he felt his unstable throne shake beneath him. He could read that sign as well as the Magi. It meant that his days were numbered. So consumed with fear, he launches this immediate security program. First, he tries to closely target the operation, a quick fix. He tried to get the Magi to give him the baby's exact location. But when they evade him, Herod settles for a more general slaughter. Matthew tells us of him killing every child in and around Bethlehem two years and under. But you know, Herod couldn't have secured the deaths of all those children if he was the only one who was afraid. Matthew reminds us that fear is powerful, that it's contagious, that it can become like an epidemic like it did that year in Jerusalem. Herod was terrified and all Jerusalem with him. Herod saw that star and all he could see was bad news. All Jerusalem could see was uncertainty and newness and change. And so fear spreads like a plague through an unhealthy system, infecting not just the powerless who can't defend themselves, but also the powerful, the elite, the ruling class as they travel and see how fragile their power truly is. If we read the story deeply and honestly, I think we have to admit that we can relate both with these magi who follow the star and Jerusalem who cowers in fear. They both reveal things about us that maybe we haven't seen clearly before. You see, in that picture of Herod and all Jerusalem, there's judgment for us. Matthew holds it before us like a mirror, asking us to look at ourselves for what we are, to acknowledge that fear cripples us too. 
It's fear that cripples us when the light calls us forward. When God calls us into new things, when the road is unfamiliar, when following him means giving up control, when his power gets in the way of my power, when he chooses to reveal himself to an outsider instead of an insider, to them instead of us, it's fear that slows down the spirit when it points in a direction that we didn't plan for. It's fear that cripples us when we think we're unlovable or unforgivable or just not worth the time. It's fear that leads to stereotypes and dismissing or diminishing other people. It's fear that leads us to push back the light so that I can keep sitting on the throne myself. Herod is terrified and all of us with him. And yet, Matthew doesn't leave us to despair. Because alongside that mirror of Herod is another one, the Magi. Verse 10 tells us that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Seeing the star stop, we might say the Magi were wildly happy. But why is that? Because when you stop and think about it, there's no obvious reason at this point in the story that these astrologers from the East should be so wildly excited. After all, they hadn't seen that much that ordinary eyes would interpret as some divine revelation from God. I mean, they'd seen a star rising in the East, a tiny point of bright light. And because they were trained to take the, the heavenly bodies very, very seriously, they followed it probably hundreds of miles, nearly 900 from Mesopotamia, across the northern edge of the Syrian desert, down into Roman Palestine, and until they got to the little and not obviously distinguished city of Bethlehem. And when they're finally led to the star's resting place, when it does come to stop, where do they find themselves standing except in front of a beautifully average home? standing before a Jewish woman and her baby. And at that point, those magi rejoiced with a really, really big joy, as the gospel literally reads. And coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling down, they worshiped him. These highly educated foreigners, distinguished enough to be summoned for a private consultation with King Herod, they were the first ones to worship our Lord. The light of the world has made himself known to the Gentiles. All the world can now see his light in full. And opening their treasures, they presented him with a tribute fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They took that baby to be the real thing, the one born king of the Jews, whose birth the prophets had foretold and that they had heard about for so long. But this isn't Luke's nativity story. There is no angel choir announcing it in the heavens All Matthew's magi see is this ordinary Jewish mother with her baby. What is it that causes them exceedingly great joy? One March afternoon, what's now almost 15 years ago, a school bus 
on its way to a high school girls soccer game was full of expectant players. The weather was a little bit rainy and some debris in the road caused the school bus driver to swerve unexpectedly. The bus would ultimately crash, falling not just to the side, but flipping on its side and coming to rest in the nearby ditch. Among those who were injured, two of the high school girls lost their life. One of them was my cousin. If I was nine ladies dancing, she was our 11 pipers piping. In some ways, that tradition of lining up everybody, age, youngest to oldest, it was always going to end at some point, whether our grandmother passed away and we were no longer obligated, or we had children of our own and do what parents do and make them do the song and dance. It's hard to keep singing when your Christmas song loses a part. Maybe you know that pain or some other loss, or some other part of the world's brokenness that leads you to despair. But isn't that exactly the reason that we need the Christ child? Because for all their searching, these magi know that life is hard and broken and far from the way that God intends it to be, and you know it too. You don't have to look far to know that there is darkness in our world and despair around you, whether in loss or in addiction or in disease or in broken relationships or hidden sin. And these magi know that they are shipwrecked in life, lost, grasping in the dark and without hope. And until they have met this Christ... Until God makes himself known to them, revealing his light to the Gentiles, declaring once and for all that there is a hope. They're still in that despair. So why? Why are they overwhelmed with joy? Because they found the hope that we need. The message of Epiphany is not that God is born in Christ and all is well with this world, so let's all just be happy. Thank God that's not the message. I mean, looking at our world, who would believe that? It's not even that Jesus is born and all is well with us who believe in him. And who among us would believe that? No, the message of this Epiphany, of God's light showing up, is that Jesus Christ is born into our world. And for us who believe in him, there is now a clear focus for our hope. Fear and despair no longer have the last word. We don't have to stand with Herod and his reign and all of Jerusalem with him. Isaiah saw it coming. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And when they saw the star had stopped, these three or five or 30 travelers in a country not their own, in a land literally being governed by fear, their hope in what God had revealed came clear. The Proverbs say the hope of the righteous is gladness. 
And that's why they're filled with exceedingly great joy, because their very hope is right in front of them. Herod saw the star, and he was terrified. But when they saw the star, they knew they were watching the light of the world break into the darkness that they had known too well. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Having experienced the surpassing joy of Bethlehem and knowing that it came from God, the Magi listened to the dream that also came from God and warned them not to return to Herod. And instead, the scriptures tell us they departed by another road for their own country. Matthew, in this story, shows us a new way forward. A new way forward for a new year where each day we are given the chance to be led by hope or to be led by fear. He challenges us to be a community of hope, to be a church, a place, as it has been from the very beginning, from the very first worshipers of Jesus. A community of hope in the midst of a world full of fear. Matthew's Gospels challenges us to live boldly in this hope of the Magi so that having rejoiced with them at the first coming of Christ, we may at his second coming know that joy even more. As 1 John 5 say, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And he joins with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 saying, arise and shine for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen on you. Fix your eyes on that light. Look up. See the light lifting in front of you. Leave behind fear and despair, Matthew says. Our hope has come. You too can have exceedingly great joy. Because as the scriptures tell us, not only has hope come to be born in this world to rescue God's people, but there is coming a day when his light will come again. As Revelation paints the picture, that city will have no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it because the glory of the Lord will have illumined it and the lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Fear and despair will not have the last word. And so Matthew implores us just a few chapters later. As you look to the light, as you follow it to our hope in Jesus Christ, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. I wonder this morning, do you know that you're lost enough to need a guiding light? Have you looked up lately to see where God might lead? Have you been captive to the fear of this world? Or are you with the Magi, living in the gladness that comes from Jesus Christ, our hope? Join me as we pray.
O great God, light of the world. We come before you this morning as a people grasping in darkness, longing to see you, longing to see more of your light. Father, we believe in you as our only hope. We pray that you would come, that you would bring your light into our lives each day in such a way that the whole world would know that there is one deep and lasting and abiding hope that people from all over, walking and stumbling in darkness, will see the star as it rises, your love and light in this world. It shines even now. It's breaking forth and into our world all around us. Father, draw all people to your light. Use us to do it. God, we pray that you would lead us into our world filled with your light, that all would see the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.